0: Good morning and welcome to the latest episode of the Cooge Street Podcast. This week, Gary and I are doing something a little different, devoting the entire podcast to discussing Margaret Atwood's new book of essays, In Other Worlds, SF and the Human Imagination. Joining us today is special guest Ursula Gwynn. Good morning, Ursula.
1: Good morning, or evening, as the case may be.
0: And good morning, Gary. And good evening, uh,
2: Jonathan, this is Ursula. This is something that people who listen to our podcast have have long since lost patience with. But it's morning in Perth and it's evening here, and I guess it's
0: late afternoon in Portland.
1: That's right. I think okay, it's so, cool. <laughs> well, I
0: think it's great. Yeah. And and Thank it's you. it's rainy here as as spring comes, and I prepare to travel to, in fact, the West Coast, not far from where you are, just down in San Diego. So busy uh, times.
1: Well, there was 99 there last week. Ooh. Oh yeah! <laughs> I don't know what that is in centigrade, but I don't want to.
0: <laughs> it, was don't the, it was in the it was in the mid nineties here on Sunday. So oh okay. well, we're we're moving into the less pleasant part of our year, our long hot summer, which is going to be lots of fun. Yeah. That's why I'm happy to be flying into your fall for a month. So anyway, <laughs> right. we're here to discuss Margaret Atwood's In Other Words, which I think is a really curious and Interesting book, and it's one. I mean, in, before we commenced the whole podcast, we'd exchanged a little bit of email, and one of the things which I think you'd highlighted in email with Gary Ursula was that one of the standard sort of approaches to internet discussion of anything seems to be to to read somebody else's response to something and then respond to that without ever reading the original source, and so it was, which is a very interesting but not very helpful way to discuss something. I think it is. <laughs> There's an awful lot of that on
1: on on the net. Yes, it does seem to be.
0: And so I think we've all gone. with actually read we've read the book, and now yeah. I guess I mean, the question that first occurred to me, and the one I guess I'd open with is, what is the purpose of this book? I don't really understand. You know, it's it's a curious, curious book.
1: Well, I know that Margaret has been kind of interested in. Um, talking about science fiction for a couple of years now, Uh, because, you know, um, our literary arts program here had her, and they had me to interview her when she was here, and um, she did want to talk about speculative fiction, as she would call it, Uh, partly, of course, because she, uh, The Year of the Flood had just come out, Mm -hmm. Uh, and and it's obviously a science fiction or spec fic book but uh also her mind just seemed to be playing around with, with all these ideas. So I think the book kind of grew out of that. Uh it's is one one answer. Uh
2: that's my sense is that it grew out of uh that. And she virtually says it in the book that it it grew largely out of that discussion and then uh, out of out of your review in the Guardian of the year of the flood.
1: Yeah, uh, which and- was uh uh kind of a uh you know a bit of a challenge, uh, more of a challenge than I really wanted to uh, to make to a friend, but
0: uh, mm. I did. So. Well, well, I guess we should preface as well, I mean, you, you and Margaret are friends, yes?
1: It seems as if we just, yes, we sort of got on when we first met, and, and, and have always got on. Yeah, I like
0: her mm. very much. Well, I, I think it's just worth uh, sort of inserting that here, because unfortunately what seems to have evolved over time is that the discussion between The science fiction field and Margaret Atwood or science fiction fans and Margaret Atwood or about Margaret Atwood has become a very negative defensive discussion. You know, it's all about why don't you want to be included with us or whatever it might be, which doesn't strike me as a very useful conversation anyway. So I think it it, it helps us setting up this is not something that we're opposed to in principle at all. It's just interesting to see what she thinks she's observing as you read the book.
1: Right, and, and in a sense, the question, as you phrase it, as the, the field's question to Margaret Atwood, is, is, is also mine. Uh, why do you want to distance yourself? Why do you want to redefine science fiction in your particular way that I don't think anybody else exactly agrees with? Um, it's isn't, not, isn't her definition of science fiction... Uh, as always taking place on other worlds, for instance. I mean,
2: that's just not. No, nobody, nobody accepts that and knows anything about science fiction. No, it's very right. odd because she, she, at one point uh, early in the book, um, makes a distinction between H. G. Wells and what she calls science fiction, which, she, which most of us would think yes, it's science fiction, and she identifies herself with Jules Verne, which I think is bizarre. <laughs> Yeah, I do, too. It's it's a Uh, distinction. Yeah. Go
1: ahead. Well, as as if she were over on the hard sci-fi side of of that weird little argument within science fiction about hard and soft, you know. Uh, Yeah, and... uh...
0: She, She almost seems to sort of want to place herself with well, what, what was briefly called mundane science fiction, I guess. And certainly you know, she seems to identify it as some sort of real-world science fiction. You people over there are in, involved in those strange, wondery tales, and it all comes out of bug-eyed, bug-eyed monster space operas and all that kind of thing, and that's your thing. But my thing is this other thing entirely, and I, I'm defining myself so I am walled off from that in a way that nobody else would consider science fiction to, to be split up.
1: Right. And then, you know, she's she's doing what I think a great many of us think science fiction mostly does, which is actually sort of ponder about things on this world using metaphors of outer space or future time or whatever, all all the tropes are, are metaphors, to talk about us. Because, of course, I mean, that's what readers are interested in, basically, is us. I think They're that, not uh, really interested in squids in outer space, as she keeps, <laughs> or used to keep saying, you know, uh, okay. in themselves, I, I, maybe not as much as they ought to be, you know.
2: Mm-hmm. No, I had mixed feelings about that squids in space remark, but I think Jonathan pointed this out to me. Yes, on the one hand, it's it's demeaning and stereotyping. On the other hand, there were a couple of squids in space novels in print when she said that.
1: Mm. Well, sure. I mean, what my friend Vonda McIntyre wrote, a splendid squids in outer space novel, actually. Uh, There're mm-hmm. quite a few of them and uh <laughs> if you go into squids in outer space on Google you'll you will find yourself in a wonderful world uh, <laughs> of many many squids in outer space. <laughs> that's but that's that's where science fiction sort of goes wandering happily off into its own little world. but uh, mm-hmm. that, of a, that's where it becomes a, a small community again uh, of you know, people enjoying themselves in this way. Mm-hmm. But and I yeah. think that,
2: yeah, that community may be part of the issue. I mean, I, I think uh, uh, we, we talked about uh, uh, briefly, I sent you some excerpts from Michael Swanwick's review, and one of the things he said is that the book isn't about science fiction, it's about Margaret Atwood's relationship to science fiction, um, which strikes yeah. me as being accurate, uh, because she, she doesn't really, um, well, to be honest, she doesn't have much of an understanding of the genre at all, but she's—it's a well-meaning book. It's a well-intentioned book, and I think it's uh, it, well. Apart from not knowing why it exists, it's—it's um, it's, it's not an attack on science fiction. And I get very sensitive to science fiction fans, some of whom we've all met, who believe that you're not allowed, you're not permitted to talk about science fiction unless you've read all of it, and and within the last week. And so therefore her her lack of awareness of the field is something I don't necessarily hold against her. Um.
1: Uh, But if you're going to get into definitions and things, should you not have read uh, some of the criticism? Uh, Do you feel that she's read what anybody else says about science fiction?
2: Really? No.
0: I don't think she's paid the slightest. I
1: I think, you see... is that fair?
0: <laughs> I don't think it's fair. I think the curious thing, you read the book and what you realize is she's a very, very intelligent woman who's got a yeah. long academic past. She's she's obviously researched and worked on a lot of things, but she didn't research and work on this. That's what right. I find curious. What she's done is she has extrapolated from her own idiosyncratic reading experience into yeah. an interpretation of something. Then thought, um, put that on top of an existing set of definitions and said, no, those terms don't apply. Mine do. This is what I mean when I say it. And it's always valid to, to define your own terms. We could never be friends with someone like John Cluton and not allow you to make up your own terms. I mean Things like Ustopia, which is a curious thing. But I don't think you get to redefine science fiction your own way when it's already... A known thing. I mean, I have sympathy for what she says earlier in the early in the book, where you know the standard fan definition to some degree of science fiction is the old Damon Knight one. It is what I you know I know what it is when I point to it. So it's hard it's hard to find a useful one. We're not going to find one now, but I don't think her sidestepping the whole issue and saying it's 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 this new thing of mine really is a legitimate argument point in structuring her book.
1: I tend to you agree. Mean, with- uh, yeah, I- you mean it's not legitimate for us to argue about?
0: It? No, no, I think it's legitimate for us no. to argue about. it. I just think it's not a, a legitimate academic technique or whatever in her book for her to oh, say oh right. i'm just I'm just going to make yeah. up my my own definition and run with that
1: right, which is kind of doing what Damon Knight said uh mm-hmm. it, it, it's you know it's uh it is what I say when I point to it uh, and that is an odd thing for um, a woman who wrote an absolutely brilliant book, for instance, about Canadian literature. Mm-hmm. And so you know who 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 can, who is as you say, of both a scholar and a brilliant mind.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's well, I tell you what. Well, I, I guess what I feel is that, well, this is something I don't have to take seriously. That in that in that sense, she accepts the the literary judgment against science fiction. Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. that you know I, I don't have to read all that that Darko Suveen and difficult people like that wrote about it <laughs> because what does it matter anyway sort of is, is kind of to me the implication which makes me unhappy
2: yeah well uh, I, I agree I, I sometimes wonder and this is this is me speaking as an academic snob I suppose I wonder if she'd actually finished that fascinating dissertation she started at the University of Toronto uh, which which dealt with the origins of modern <laughs> fantasy and, and the Victorians that, that maybe that would have given her the literary discipline to realize you don't talk about a body of work unless you've at least looked at what is now a massive historical, um, and, and, and critical body of literature. Um, which she the, the two things that struck me, um, Jonathan mentioned the term astopia, for example, the other term, which she uses, which she seems to think she invented was speculative fiction. Um, well, when I read speculative fiction, of course, I thought, okay, Heinlein 1940, maybe, and when I read her definition of utopia, the first thing that came to mind was the dispossessed. Is she saying anything other than what um, you and, and, and Chip Delaney have been calling an ambiguous utopia or, in Chip's case, an ambiguous heterotopia for, what, 30 years now? Uh,
1: well, I think she was trying to make a rather unfortunate word, which I didn't even know how to pronounce it. Mm. And if the word mm. us is in it, that's <laughs> that's deadly. I mean, what's us about it? I know. Um, I, I thought maybe it was Utopia or something. But anyway, um, she's just trying to combine Utopia and Dystopia in one word, which is mm-hmm. quite unnecessary. For heaven's sake. Yeah. I mean, everybody knows they're closely related and often kind of <laughs> turn from one to the other within a book.
0: Yeah. Uh, to to what extent? do you both think this book is intended as a little bit of a peace offering? I mean, she, what she seems to be doing is trying to frame a way for saying that science fiction is okay. I don't really write science fiction. I write this kind of other things. So here are my three novels that I still love and they're not really science fiction, but you guys are perfectly okay too. So what do you think that's what she's trying to do?
1: Well, that's, yeah, I think, I think you're probably right. Uh, the trouble is I'm not sure it's going to work. <laughs> it, 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 uh, well, you I'm, know, uh, I'm in this odd position. You know, she, she doesn't have to make a peace offering to me because yeah. we sort of I, know where each other stands.
0: Uh, I, I, but if she's
1: she trying to make peace with the field, you I mean,
0: Yeah, yeah, it? Yes, I think so, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know how much she greatly cares about the field per se in the sense of whether we are happy or not. But I get the feeling that constantly being or regularly being approached and sort of said, why don't you want your books to be considered science fiction, would get tiresome. And obviously she has some affection for some elements of the field. Uh, and uh-huh. That, that, uh-huh. that very much throws you know, comes through in the book. But there's also that sort of yeah. – yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah. here's this thing. And also, I mean, I have to say to some degree, also making peace with you, I mean, you do come up in the book quite a lot. Well, uh, I, I, am,
1: I would be very curious, and I could ask her this, but I don't think I will – <laughs> How many other uh, more or less contemporary science fiction writers do you read?
3: Mm. Have
1: you read? Because most of what she talks about w- uh, was fairly well in the past, right?
0: Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I don't um, get it, the impression that she's read much I, after I, I, the early 1970s from the, what she's written in the book.
2: I can answer that because I was when I was writing the review, I, I checked this out. Uh, her own history of reading, which I found utterly fascinating growing up in the Canadian woods and discovering... Fairy tales, mm-hmm. and eventually, in her teens, she mentions Ray Bradbury and John Wyndham. After Bradbury and Wyndham, the only contemporary work of science fiction I think she mentions in in the entire book is The Birthday of the World.
1: Huh? Yeah. Okay. So, on the evidence in this book, uh, she really didn't follow the kind of uh, science fiction. Oh, my goodness, through all the years, of the feminist years, and 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 that whole development in the 80s, the 70s and 80s, where there was so much kind of new kinds of work coming out and so on.
2: I would love Uh, to know. Yeah, that
1: was was sort of my impression. Mm -hmm.
2: I think she had an experience, which is not uniquely her experience, and I want to keep coming back to this because I know other uh, literary people who at some point in their childhoods, discovered science fiction, were in, enamored of it for a while, and then discovered Virginia Woolf or Faulkner or Joyce and, and, and gave it up. And some people didn't give it up. And I think what happened to her was that she, at some youthful point, uh, probably was enamored of John Wyndham and Ray Bradbury. And uh, I wouldn't, I hate to use this term, but she might use it, outgrew it. And by outgrowing it, you're absolutely right. She, she missed Samuel R. Delaney. She missed Joanna Rush. She missed all the way up to Nala Hopkinson and, and, and Karen Lord. So she's making assumptions about the field. Um, and I think worse, the thing that I found a little bit offensive is that um, she's, she's making a peace offering to the writing of science fiction. But whenever she alludes to the readers of science fiction... She talks about readers who are going to be disappointed because they don't find the lizardmen of Xenor in her book. She talks about people in skin-tight clothing. Um, She has a kind of image of science fiction readers that seems to be drawn from television.
1: Ah, yeah. Um, You know, she may have run into some some people, too, in in audiences. That could be got up and, and acted a bit ugly because I've seen people do that to Margaret Atwood. She she brings something out in people. She she um she can really put people on the edge and they they they, they attack her. Which is a very unwise thing to do. <laughs> 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 so, I mean, she just she takes them off the knees S- with salt. such grace that they, they don't even know they're bleeding. You know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, well. I said you don't run rings around that lady uh believe me and and you don't attack her with a bludgeon either, which some people have tried to do, I think, thinking to defend science fiction against her which is which is not necessary um yeah, well, i think I think you're definitely this is something that that one I found the book somewhat less than satisfactory was you know I read this reread the, the 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 fine review she did of of uh, my book but there was nothing uh, contemporary or since. No. Uh done then, then and I would you know I'd like to see what, what she would think about some, some some of the other writers. She,
0: but she also didn't talk about so it much in the terms that's of that's science.
1: Kind of disappointing.
0: Sorry. I was gonna say she also didn't talk in, in that in the review of The Birthday of the World and other stories she didn't even particularly talk about it in the context of science fiction either which i think sort of says quite a bit about her reading and her approach to 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 uh oh. books like that
1: now in all fairness she that was written for the uh new york times book yeah. review which i don't see it anymore I, uh i don't read the tls but but uh <laughs> Uh, the Times was completely anti-science fiction, or almost completely at that time. It was extremely defending literature against genre, you know. Yeah. And so yeah. she was, um, they asked her to do it, and yeah. so she was in a kind of a uncomfortable position, and she could not assume that her readers knew anything about
2: science fiction. Sure, sure. That's true. Uh, and, and And I think one of the things we have to consider is the venues in which she published these various things. But I think when yeah. she once we get past the first three essays, which for the three lectures she gave at Emory last fall, uh, it's clear to me that she's stretching to find evidence that she's read science fiction. So she's got you know, reviews of uh, uh, Marge Percy. I think uh, Ishiguro is in here um, and uh, and Brave New World. So it's it's clear that there's a little bit of rummaging going around in order to fill out a book here.
1: Yeah. There's some awfully good pieces. I I like the madness of mad scientists. And, and there's there's, several there's pieces.
2: Some, the, the, there are some odd things. Here's the thing that if you if you look closely enough at the, at the book, there's a sense that there there is a real science fiction reader somewhere deep inside Margaret Atwood. I'm convinced of that. But, yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I
1: totally agree. Yeah. 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 She she knows when she reads it, she knows what to appreciate.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is it is it the way Sorry. she is it the way she chooses to talk about it then that, that becomes to some extent the problem in public? I mean because she's obviously unintentionally made herself the lightning rod for this whole insecurity the science fiction field has seems to have about how it's accepted in the mainstream because certainly I mean her the distancing so of herself from science fiction that she's made at various times is by no means unique. She's not the only mainstream writers, so-called, who would not want to be classified particularly as science fiction. Yeah. Oh, I,
1: I I don't know how many books I have reviewed for The Guardian. Uh, English novels, whose author and publisher assures earnestly that this is, of course, not sci-fi. Good <laughs> yeah. God, she never touched such a thing, you know. And it's what it is, of course, usually it's rather badly written, rather naive science fiction written
2: by somebody who hasn't mm. read
1: enough of it to know how to write it yet, you know? Somebody dabbling in it.
2: Yeah. And um, if, you, if you can keep the label off of it, you might have a shot at the booker. <laughs> that's
1: it. That's it. And Margaret Edwin denies this directly when when she quotes from my guard interview of her, but she hasn't quite convinced me yet. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's the truth. If if you if you're if they slap that label sci-fi on your book, you're not going to win one of the big
0: prizes. Basically, if, yeah. If uh, if, if, Rx, if Rx and Craig had been a uh, a science fiction special, it wouldn't yeah. have been in the Guardian. Huh. And maybe that's, that's, that, right. that's maybe that's a fair thing to say as well. This this shouldn't be. I mean, obviously we're we're talking around Margaret's book. But it's not really about her, the key thing that we're looking at, which is this discomfort with the way still science fiction gets received in the broader community when it comes to literary prizes and a certain kind of acclaim.
1: But it's changing. That That is slowly changing. There's no doubt about it. People who are real crossovers, like Michael Chabon, mm.
3: uh,
1: are making a huge difference. I, I really do believe it. It is... It, it's not as bad as it was. And I don't oh. think science fiction really needs to be very insecure anymore. Well, uh, it's, it's because we've are be. just we we've spread out so much into the sort of mainstream.
2: Mm-hmm. I remember uh, you were talking about the New York Times giving limitations for her. And when she wrote that review, I'm sure that was after the era of Gerald Jonas. And I know a lot of us had problems with Gerald Jonas. I only talked to him once. But he was given such severe limitations on what he could do when he wrote that science yes. fiction at the time, once every six weeks right. at most, and then only so many. Now, you're absolutely right. Now at Time Magazine, we have Lev Grossman, who loves us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this. Well, so well, he, yeah. he writes fantasy. Um, yeah. <laughs>
1: and, and very intelligent, uh, a very intelligent person, again. And I think, a, a well tra- you know, well-trained both in literature and, and in his genres. So, uh, hmm. yeah, it's uh, things, I, I don't know, I, uh, <laughs> I spent so yep. many decades yep. fulminating against the literary establishment, you know, I thought, gee, well, I guess Joshua blew her little trumpet and the walls fell down, or, you know, <laughs> uh, a, a lot of the, a lot of the walls at least are, are a lot lower than they were. Let, let me and, ask- of course, some people want them to be there. Some people want, want wolves to hide inside and, and keep the ghetto. And yeah. they should be able to, for goodness sakes.
2: Let me ask there, sorry. going to Sorry. There are people on both sides of the wall who want to keep the walls up. There are people within science fiction yeah. who want this clubby atmosphere to be sacrosanct. Yeah.
1: That's what I meant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there are fewer people outside that think it's important.
0: True. I mean, actually, something that I keep coming back to just personally reading in the field and reading about the field is why do we still care? Not about the field, but about the walls and whether they're up or down or inside. The, the world, when you actually look at it today in 2011, you know, it doesn't seem to have that many real walls at all. They're just perceived ones. So I'm not really sure why the field still, other than out of old habit, particularly cares about this perceived us, them, we're in the gutter, they're the mainstream kind of a thing. <laughs> which doesn't seem to actually relate to the world as I see it around us, at least today.
1: What do, what do you think, Gary? I think
2: that. that um, well, no, I, I, I tend to agree that the walls are breaking down in some areas. It's like, it's like there are three gaps in the Berlin Wall, but the Berlin Wall is still there, and there are people who are trying to fill in the gaps. <laughs> um, and
1: yeah, well, you're you are in academe. I am, in,
2: academe.
1: which is which is where the walls were in some way highest and firmest and most bitterly defended. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that kids were prevented from studying science fiction for decades after all. They could read it, but they had to do it on their own. Well, they Uh, had to do it uh, on their own. They wouldn't wouldn't get any academic help doing it.
2: No, and and frequently they would know a lot. Uh, uh, One of my favorite quotations from Isaac Asimov, from whom I don't have a lot of favorite quotations now that I think about it, somebody asked him about teaching science fiction and uh, about academia and science fiction. He said he didn't know anything about academia and science fiction. he only taught biochemistry. But what he knew about teaching biochemistry is that you shouldn't teach biochemistry if your students know more about it than you do, and you shouldn't teach biochemistry if you think it's a load of crap. (laughs) Beautiful.
1: That's that's that. I will try to remember that. Yeah. That's that's lovely.
0: (laughs) So, So tell me, is Margaret Atwood trying to teach us biochemistry? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, I, I don't think so. I think she's dancing a little dance that is somewhat self-protective and somewhat, as you say, peacemaking. Uh, it, and maybe it, just, you know, trying to talk about books she liked when she was a kid, which is always kind of fun.
2: Yeah. I guess my question is, uh, and I view the book as, uh, as, as well-meaning. I think it is a peace offering. I think it's a well-intentioned book. I think it's a book which will be read by a lot of Margaret Atwood readers who have no interest in science fiction or some Margaret Atwood readers. I don't think it was addressed to us. I think it was addressed to those readers. And my question is, is a sympathetic but serious misunderstanding of science fiction better or worse than being ignored?
1: <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> Can I think for an hour or two? <laughs>
2: well,
1: here's, here's
2: another question that, that's related to that because um, you, Ursula, and this and you must be used to this by now, you must be accustomed to this, are singled out as, well, science fiction, eh, meh, but Ursula Le Guin is a great writer. And in other words, that becomes the great the great writer theory of literature, the great man theory of history. Um that that there are writers who the genre has problems, but there are writers who transcend the genre. And I know my friend Peter Straub gets red in the face when somebody says that he transcends his genre <laughs>
1: you know I think most women who are women writers conscious of where women have been in literature for so long and and, and all that and most feminists have enormous problems with the whole <laughs> great writer great man theory yeah or the great composer or anything else. It just is so
2: offensive in a way. Mm, mm. Uh, (laughs) It's being like, you know, your friends are idiots, but you're okay.
1: (laughs) That's what, that's what I get. You mean, Uh, I I get, why do you hang out with those creeps? Uh, You know, when, when, when you can actually write, uh,
0: Mm-hmm. And, and, and and what do you say when what you're, you're asked such a day, you know?
1: <laughs>
0: Some of my best it's friends are sort of
1: like, me. "Why are you Jewish?" I mean, <laughs> how do you answer a question like that? Uh, well, it's just the way I am. I'm sorry, you know,
3: <laughs> if you
1: happen to be Jewish or if you happen to write science fiction or whatever, uh, you know, it's not a fair question. No. But I, uh, you
2: know, how do we I mean, see People, the other way to look at that. It? Uh, the other way to look at that is if 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 you write what is quote unquote by my academic standards, speaking as a recovering PhD, um, if you actually uh, can write literary science fiction quote unquote literary, or Peter can write literary horror fiction quote unquote literary, why is that perceived as transcending the genre rather than bringing the genre into an expanding the genre? Um, in other words, I, uh, it, it seems.
1: Yeah, I think I think because the underlying wish is still to keep the genre down, and not to respect it as a genre, and therefore anybody who does it well, writes a good novel in that genre, isn't really writing science fiction. You know, that's the old: if it's good, it's science fiction; if it's science fiction, it isn't good. Uh, right. Exactly. Thing. And Kings that that is simply part of the game of how to keep any particular art form down is by treating it as uh, inherently trash.
2: Yeah, I suppose that's true. I suppose when when people finally, when, when the musicologists back in the forties finally began writing about Duke Ellington as a composer, uh, it was uh-huh. a way of, or, it was a way of saying, oh, he's kind of like George Gershwin, so he's not really one of those people. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, but
1: I think that's a very good – bringing musicians out of ghettos, various, various ghettos, was exactly the same phenomenon, and it took a long
2: time sometimes. Well, it, it, it took decades, and it's taking decades in, in, in terms of science fiction. And I guess when we say things like this, it makes the Atwood book look 20 years out of date. Um, like she's, she wants to make an argument in favor of that. She, she, I I really believe that she really wants to make an argument in favor of the importance of science fiction and, uh, and, and and to, to express some sympathy toward. but she's doing it in a way that might've been useful in 1980. Yeah. uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just agreeing. Oh, the, the, the book which most obviously uh, seems to rate a comparison with this is a book which is now more than 50 years old. It's Kingsley Amos's New Maps of Hell. And there are some uh, interesting parallels. Because Amos gave a series of lectures at Princeton in 1959, which became New Maps of Hell. Uh, Atwood gave a series of lectures at Emory, which became the first three chapters of this book. Uh, both of them wanted to uh shake up i think to some extent shake up the literary establishment by saying there's good literature here that you're not aware of now at the risk of defending kingsley amos who was a notoriously sexist pig and all sorts of things as a writer smart man um, though very smart man yeah a a very smart man but what he did before he gave those lectures at princeton was he wrote a lot of contemporary science fiction Um, he ended up uh, anointing Fred Pohl as the greatest science fiction writer in the world in 1960, which mm-hmm. whether you agree with it or not was a judgment based on having read a lot of science fiction of the fifties before he gave these lectures. Uh, mm-hmm. The sense mm-hmm. from Act's book is that she read the birthday of the world and she remembered vaguely John Wyndham. And then she knew a lot about, uh, Wells the Island of Dr. Morrow. Hmm. All
1: huh. right. Yeah. So uh, academically, scholarly speaking, she doesn't stack up too well next to Amos, which is a, a
0: curious. Um Well, I mean, I, I don't know if that was really her purpose, or you know, I mean, I think if if her purpose had been to do what Amos had done, I suspect, given the background that's evident in the book and what we know about her as an, a, an a, her academic background, that's what she would have done. You know, she probably would have gone off and actually researched it, learnt about it and been able to bring an informed point of view to what she was saying. Instead, she's engaged in a different activity where she, in a sense, tries to explain her own position in terms of her own personal history, thereby hoping, I guess, to deflect the whole people in skin-tight outfits from her you know, her readings and get them to leave her alone so she can get on with doing what she wants to do without having to be always confronted about the question of, are you writing science fiction? I think.
1: So, so, she's, that that would mean that she's, uh, her dance that is both kind of defensive and kind of evasive. She's kind of, kind of trying to get herself away from a confrontational place.
0: I think a little bit, and I don't think she actually necessarily deserves to be placed in a confrontational context, particularly by some of the people right. who plainly are confronting her. I mean, she's written, I mean, I'd like to think she can, first of all, she should be able to and is able to write whatever book she, she pleases. Mm. Um, but when she writes the trio of books that she did in Handmaid's Tale, Oryx and Crake and Year of the Flood, it's, I, I, I think you know, we should be able to talk about them as science fiction and she should be able to say that she doesn't think they are science fiction and we should be able to move on from it without it being something that the field plainly keeps coming back to again and again as somewhere where she, something that she's doing wrong by not accepting us. Uh, And it's unfortunate in a sense because it does contribute to the walls thing we were were talking about a little while ago. But on the other hand, I mean, she's one individual. And she's plainly not – I mean, you've said it, Gary. She's not antagonistic to science fiction. I've got a friend, uh, Kat Sparks, who's an up-and-coming writer, and she's off to a workshop in Florida in January. Mm. And there, Margaret Atwood will sit with apparently 10 or 12 writers of post-apocalyptic novels for five days and work with them in a writer's workshop. That doesn't strike me as something that someone who's hostile to science fiction would do. Exactly.
1: Uh, well, I think where would have been has been shoved into a sort of a confrontational position, which I really think she's trying to wiggle out of in this book, is probably she is very famous and very successful. Mm. Uh, and... You know, to be very, as famous and successful as Margaret Atwood is to arouse a great deal of jealousy among other writers. It's mm-hmm. the it's it's sad truth. Um, and she has been famous and successful not within the little science fiction field, but outside it, you know. Yeah. So when she is perceived as attacking it by talking, and she has been, she's too witty and she's too flip often, and she she says oh. things that hurt people, like the squids and so on. That, that, yeah. that you know that 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 hurt a lot of writers who have written books like that for heaven's sakes, uh, and meant them seriously. Uh, she so she gets this. She makes
2: enemies. She seems well, to... <clears throat> uh, but that's. That's fine. I mean, Joanna Russ made enemies. I mean, you, you, you want to. Uh,
1: yes and no. You know what? The first time I ever saw Margaret Atwood in public was in Toronto
2: mm-hmm. at uh,
1: Harborfront. And uh, I believe The Handmaid's Tale hadn't yet come out. It was. I think she read from it, but it wasn't out yet.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And she gave this dazzling reading from this amazing book. And there was, in, the, in that audience in Toronto, her own town, there was what I would call an anti-clack. They were there to heckle her and to ask ugly personal questions and things like that. That's where I saw her take people off the knees. Uh, and, and, you know, she's a great fencer. But why does she have to be a great fencer? Well, she seems to rouse antagonism in people. And I, mean, I think that is, uh, that, that to me, that explains something about this book. She's yeah. scared of it.
3: You yeah. know, she
2: hasn't walked it, but she doesn't quite understand it, I think.
3: Yeah.
2: So, and and you, you get the sense she wants to understand it. I mean, I don't, uh, I mean, I, I, we, we all obviously have problems with this book, but the one problem I don't have with it, I don't believe it's an, an insincere book. I don't believe it's a book that dissimulates. I believe it's a book that's trying, given her relatively limited view of science fiction, trying to explain what she thinks its value is. Now, unfortunately, when she starts talking about its value, at one point, she starts literally using the phrase, it takes readers where no man has gone before, and this sort of thing. Her defenses of science fiction are not very persuasive and are defenses that you you would have heard from Carl Sagan 30 years ago.
1: And, and and she tends to go off into the flip
2: a little yeah. quickly too, which mm. um, it's, yeah, it's 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 both. Well, and and the odd thing is the other thing that uh, to go back to Jonathan's very original question: Why did she write this book? She doesn't really need science fiction readers. She doesn't need a, a, a bunch of people in, as she thinks of it, skin tight clothes reading her books. Her books do very well. Um, and I, my immediate reaction, which I might not hold to now, because I remember this when I was reviewing Oryx and Crake, and she'd already made the squids in space comment, was that I didn't think she was attacking the science fiction market so much as she was defending the Margaret Atwood market. In other words, yeah, I think yeah. that maybe her original anxiety was that some of her readers, some of the people who had been following her since surfacing and the Robert Bridegroom and all those great novels, may, might stay away from this because it didn't look to them like a Margaret Atwood novel. And I think she wanted to reassure them that no, it's not that stuff. But of huh. course it is.
1: Well, it, is, it is that stuff. Of it and is that, that's where that's where you there is inevitably dishonesty. in well, I'm sorry to me, there is some dishonesty in her attempt to distance herself entirely from the rest of science fiction, make her own private definition of what science fiction is, which is what she writes. Right. Mm. And I don't think she's earned the right to do that.
2: Um, has anybody earned the right to do that?
1: No, because that isn't how literature is defined. Uh, it, it's, it's, <laughs> too, well, it's, it's kind of naively self interested. It's a well, you know, I, I, I say this is, this is what I write, and I say this is what it is, and, and so you have to mm. believe that. But uh, we, we don't, writers don't have that privilege. Mm. We 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 have to we have we have to let our readers define us when you come right down to it, like it or love it.
3: Yeah. Well,
1: and, and, and often they misdefine us. Uh, I've been I'm often misdefined as a science fiction writer. Uh, I do write science fiction, but I don't see myself as a science fiction writer. You know, as if that was all I did. Mm. Um, I'm also a poet and, and you know a couple other things. Mm -hmm. Uh, A book reviewer, you know, uh, people love to jam writers into pigeonholes and then watch them suffocate. And she's she's trying to not let that happen. But
0: well, in that context, do we have to sort of applaud a little bit what she's trying to do, you know, in in the context of making a bid for her own freedom, whether whether she needs to or not. Maybe there's an element of that in this. And saying that I can do whatever I want and don't have to be defined by you. And I, you know, whether the redefinition is a a good thing to do, nonetheless, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to sort of set myself in a space where I'm, where where I can do what I, I can create what I want without having to be judged by, you know, what you're interested in or how you how you want to box me. Well, but she doesn't. Well, say I've been that. doing
1: that all my life, <laughs> uh, but I, I hope I haven't done it at anybody else's experience.
0: Well, I guess that is it, isn't it? Uh, here we are, you know, there's a 250-odd page book or whatever it is. Uh, there's a significant, well, a significant chunk of which is an argument about the field, which just seems to be about distancing her from us, her from from you in many ways, and her from what we might consider to be worthwhile science fiction. Um, and not... You know, not without willing to throw everybody else to the wolves along the way a little bit. You know, it's like, I'm not doing this. You guys are over there. And now can we move along? Well, I don't know. (laughs) Uh,
2: I'm thinking uh, if if you go back before this book, and you go back and look at *Oryx and Crake and the year of the flood, which I had more, I had a lot more problems with those than I did with the handmaid's tale, which I think is brilliant. Mm. Um, And, My sense in in, in the two post-apocalyptic novels is that she was at least doing her homework in terms of the way a post-apocalyptic world would work. If you look at Margaret Atwood's science fiction compared to John Updike's Toward the End of Time or compared to Paul Theroux's The Ozone, she looks brilliant. Mm.
0: She's worked things out way more than they did. Well, I mean, she's a very gifted, intelligent, talented person. I mean, no wonder she's worked at it better than dying. a terrific writer. She, she is. Really,
1: you know, well, I, I, writer. I, I loathed Oryx and Craig. I Oryx and Craig I was bored, uncomfortable, uneasy. It struck me as, oh, this again, you know. And I, so when The Year you of know, the Flood came out, I thought, oh, dear. And <laughs> I absolutely loved it. It seemed <laughs> to me she redeemed the first novel mm. with the second one. So God knows what the third one's going to
2: be. Mm. Here's, <laughs> but here's the other thing that's odd about the second one There were I, I, I haven't got my review at hand at the moment but there were odd parallels between some of the specific inventions in the year of the flood and of all things Poland Cornbliss the space merchants down to the huh. names of some of the two, uh, and, and it occurred to me and this is a completely un, indefensible theory but when I read this book I realized okay she had been reading science fiction apparently sure it, enthusiastically, around the early 1950s. That's when Gregory She would have read The Space Merchants. Yeah. She yeah. could have read The Space Merchants.
1: Sure, she would have. Possibly, I remember everybody read The Space Merchants then, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's a perfectly fair guess, and it's not mm. an accusation, you know. Mm. Every, every writer is influenced blindly by stuff they read 20, 30, 40 years ago, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm uh and and, and it, it it creeps in and then some somebody points it out and you just hope they point it out kindly that's all <laughs> you know because you know, oh my goodness i never thought of that you know uh, i've had writers to say name that to somebody me. out of another book or something like yeah, that exactly. yeah
2: exactly uh, you breathe a huge sigh of relief when you realize that somebody isn't mad at you having said something like that but that's that's the life of a reviewer and ursula you been a reviewer as well as everything else so you know what it feels like when every once in a while you think you may have gotten it right mm. well, yes, <laughs> yeah,
1: yes. <laughs> yeah. it's a lovely
2: feeling right <laughs> absolutely we've kept you on this podcast longer than we asked you to be on this podcast we told you it would be 35 or 40 minutes we're into 15 minutes sorry uh,
0: well, well, maybe that's a chance to perhaps begin to wind up then, with, with a great mm-hmm. deal, with, with many thanks. Just quickly, at the end of it all then, what do we think of the book? Is, is it a worthwhile endeavor for readers to seek out and familiarize themselves with, or is this something that can be allowed to fall into the cracks of history faithfully?
1: Well, I think <laughs> I would say anything Margaret Atwood writes is certainly worth looking at
3: yeah.
1: mm-hmm. and, and probably worth reading. This is one you might want to bounce through if you don't know some of the stuff she's talking about, you know, and so on. But uh, just uh, just her discussions of H. G. Wells are very interesting, mm-hmm. and as Gary said, the, the first three chapters, which are her lectures, uh, you know, I think most writers would, that are open-minded would would have fun reading those. Yeah,
2: my sense is it's the same, very much the same as. As yours, Ursula, I think, and pretty much the same as um, as Michael Swanwick's was in his review. And I apologize to Michael if he hears this because I don't know where that review appeared. Um, which is that I think people who are in the science fiction field will not learn much about science fiction from it. This is not a contribution to science fiction theory. This is not uh, this is not something like if I can use one of your own titles. This is not going to be like the language of the night. It doesn't have anything in it like um, uh, science fiction and Mrs. Brown. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't have that kind of insight because she doesn't know the field well enough. But it's a brilliant mind being applied towards science fiction in a way that uh, is is not dismissive, is attempting to take it seriously, is taking seriously what little of it she's familiar with. And given that caveat, I think it's it, it's a worthwhile book. On the other hand, for people who are not science fiction people, not of our tribe, um, I hope they do read it, uh, because she doesn't really uh, dismiss the genre uh, in the way people had thought she had been dismissing the genre. Yeah, she might she might confuse them usefully.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's to useful confusion, I guess. Yeah, well, That's it's always a good thing. <laughs> no.
2: And, and, and the one thing I, I, I will say, I'm glad she chose the birthday of the world for her one contemporary review in this. And she she did recognize, and I think this maybe she knows your work a little bit better than other works. She did recognize that this is uh, a, a Hainish cycle book, which, uh, as I'm sure you are aware, all of us in science fiction celebrated. You know, when the telling came out, when the Hain- when, when you started re- returning to the Hainish world in a way like, yes okay we're back in in this world that was a sense of absolute bliss on the part of a lot of science fiction readers uh and she seems to have some sense of that she seems to have some sense of how the heinous worlds differ for example from the Earthsea worlds yeah
1: yeah and and uh also my more mundane fictions uh which are neither fantasy nor science fiction. <laughs> Maybe she was relieved to see me going off into outer space again.
2: Yeah, right. <laughs> Send her off <laughs> on a
1: rocket.
3: I oh.
2: say, when I was reviewing Unlocking the Air*, which was mostly, uh, if I pardon the expression, New Yorker stories and others, uh, it was like, yeah, you have to read this because there is a science fiction sensibility at work, even when this person is writing mainstream fiction. And I had this feeling with Atwood, and I remember reading Surfacing, when I was much younger, that was, I think, her second or third novel, maybe. And <laughs> there was something hypnotic about it, like this person. There, <clears throat> there's nothing remotely science fictional about surfacing. But I had yeah, the really. sense, even when I was much younger, thinking this is a, this is a kind of science fictional mind at work. That she'll let it go. She could do something really, you know, really interesting in this field.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a strangeness. Yeah. that she has hold of. It, it's, and it's in her poetry, too. She, she, she can be a very good poet, you know. And her poetry she comes back really is... knockout. knockout. Uh, no, and she... she this, 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 woman, this woman is uh, always worth watching.
3: Always.
0: Yeah, <laughs> well, on that note, then, we might wind up. I'd like to, and I'm sure Gary would as well, thank you very much for joining us, Ursula. It's been a delight to have you with us. You. Anytime you'd like to
2: join us on a podcast...
1: It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for inviting me in, fellas.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Good night.
2: Thanks. Good night. Okay. Good night.
0: And that was Ursula K. Le Guin, and we've spoke talked about Margaret Atwood and her new book. And Gary, I think we're ready to sort of set to 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 sign off for the week and, and head off into the. Um, the Great Unknown, because of course, this Friday, I'm headed off, as I intimated during the recording, to San Diego for World Fantasy.
2: Okay, Ursula's no longer there, right? Yes, yeah, she is, yeah. Okay, she no-
0: Yeah, so you're heading out, what, Thursday,
2: Friday? Yes. Well, I envy you being in San Diego. I don't envy you all the travel involved. No, it's going to oh. be pretty foul, but that's okay. I sp- yeah, I know, but I spent this afternoon uh, working on Emmy's Bat Mitzvah speech, and I'm getting enthusiastic about that, so I... Part of me regrets not missing not seeing San Diego, but part of me is thinking this is gonna be cool. Uh ah. So, ah, well, so yeah, so good. Hello to everybody. Yeah, do you think we should try to do any podcasts from there?
0: I don't uh, I'm not sure. We'll have to talk about it once we've finished recording. Yeah, okay. Okay. We're still, We're still recording. This was a little tail ending. Oh, oh, cut it off. Uh, I can cut it off. Yes. Uh, well,
2: Ursula, okay, let me tell you uh, I will say this after uh, afterwards. Wasn't Ursula
0: delightful? She is always delightful. I, I, I heard her interviewed uh, on the BBC a while ago, and she was, was wonderful. And she was very kind to give us her time, and I'm very grateful for it. But on that cheery note, Gary, I will tr- talk note. to you again soon. This will be the first in a series of interviews, I think, that go live over the coming month while I'm traveling. Uh, I would imagine it will be up later today with a little bit of luck. And then okay. we'll follow it with interviews with, in no particular order, Ian McDonald, Kim Stanley Robinson, and Alistair Reynolds. And then you and I will be back live in um, mid mid November. Mid November, and you will be able to report back
2: on what World Fantasy was like. I will indeed. And that should be fascinating.
0: Until such until that so happens, I'll Gary. Talk to
2: you again. You bet. Take care, my friend. Farewell. Take good night.